Father, we thank you for another opportunity to hear your word. We thank you that as we break the bread, which is your word, this morning, may it minister to us life. May we experience illumination. May we gain understanding of your concepts and your ideals. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we looked at the subject of communion and deduced scripturally that it was incepted or initiated on the first day of the Passover. If you do remember, last week, we looked at how the Passover came into existence. It started as a meal, then it progressed from that to becoming a festival. And it was a festival in memoriam of God's deliverance out of the hand of the Egyptians who were subjecting the Israelites to very torturous and very um, inhumane conditions. So for this reason, a festival was created called the Passover to celebrate that. It reminded them of God's promise that he gave to their forefather Abraham. And the Bible lets us know in Psalm 105 verse 42 that... The Israelites warranted deliverance because God remembered his holy promise and his covenant to Abraham. That was why they were delivered. So the Israelites had every cause to celebrate that festival called Passover to remind themselves of the Lord's goodness. It was in observation of that festival that Jesus decided to also incept something called the Holy Communion which is the new covenant. And we came to understand the purpose of it. The purpose of doing communion uh, is to do it in his honor. And what does it mean to do it in his remembrance? It simply means to remember his death. So whenever we celebrate Easter, we are doing it in honor of Christ because we remember his crucifixion, his death, burial, and resurrection. And what does it mean when we remember these cardinal points of Christianity, which sums up Christ's life? It, it, it simply means that we announce the benefits, the blessings, the privileges associated with that, that affects our Christian work with God. Amen. We also came to realize that communion is a dress rehearsal. Whenever we take communion, Jesus said it, that one day we will sup with him. Amen. I like that so much. When we looked at Matthew's account, and we looked at verse 29 of Matthew 26, Jesus says that he will not take up this wine again until he eats with us in the new kingdom. And I so look forward to that. Amen. So whenever we have communion, see it as dress rehearsal. Last week I ended on, did the church practice communion? So now Jesus inserted it. But did the first church or the early church that was made of the apostles mainly, did they continue in this practice? I want to give three scripture readings uh, to establish that. Amen. You know, when you want to establish a doctrine, two, two scriptures at most, or no, two scriptures minimum 
at most three. So I just want to give three. I could give more, but let me settle with these three. So my first scripture reading is Acts chapter 2, verse 42. I'm going to read this in two different translations. The New Living Translation and the Amplified Classic AMPC. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. That's the New Living Translation. When you read the King James Version or the New King James, it just says that they were committed to breaking of bread. But when you read other contemporary versions, breaking of bread is not just talking about love feast or having a meal with brethren in the atmosphere of love. Breaking of bread also meant they practice the sacrament, which was called the Holy Communion. Amen. Now, let me read this in the Amplified Classic. This was in the New Living Translation. And they steadfastly persevered devoting themselves constantly to the instruction and fellowship of the apostles, to the breaking of bread, including the Lord's Supper and prayers. So you see, right here, we see another version of the scripture which opens up the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread just doesn't mean they had meals. The breaking of bread here also means that they continued in the Lord's Supper. So, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we see that when Jesus left, one of the instructions that the apostles took hold to their hearts was to continue in the Lord's Supper. And what's the Lord's Supper? Communion. Amen. Second scripture reading. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. I'm reading this in two translations. I'm reading it in the New Living Translation again, and then secondly in the message. So look at the New Living Translation. On the first day of the week, we gathered with the local believers to share in the Lord's Supper. Paul was preaching to them, and since he was leaving the next day, he kept talking until midnight. That was a long service. Can you imagine? I want to try it, and I will see how many of you will engage me. Amen. (laughs) Paul started preaching in the morning. He didn't finish till midnight. But something amazing was said here. On the first day of the week, that was on the Sunday, they took the Lord's Supper. So it was a constant thing. So with Paul, every Sunday, they had communion. It's not like, you know, here we do it once every month. Paul was doing it regularly because he understood the significance of it. And probably, you know that when Paul was converted, he went to the church in Jerusalem. And the church in Jerusalem was what we read the account of. They they committed themselves to four strong things. Doctrine, fellowshipping with the brethren, breaking of bread, and then prayer. And I'm sure Paul being a convert, being discipled, 
he also picked up that habit. So when Paul was pastoring and when he was ministering in his missionary trips, he inculcated that in. On the first Sunday, it was a regular thing. Now, look at the message. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. We met on Sunday to worship and celebrate the Master's Supper. So this was not just feast. This was communion, the Lord's Supper. Paul addressed the congregation. Our plan was to leave first in the morning, but Paul talked on way past midnight. Amen. So right here, the second scripture reading, we see that the early church, they practiced communion. They practiced the art of observing the Lord's Supper, which we have spoken about. Third scripture reading. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 to 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 to 17. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? You see the tense is using here, present continuous. So that means it's a habit. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Sometimes there are people who say the word communion is not in the Bible. Right here, it's here. Why is it called a communion? It's called communion because it is the fellowship of the blood and the body of Christ, which symbolize the new covenant. That's why it's called a communion. Amen. And we see it right here. For we though many are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. So the church in Corinth, communion was something they practiced on the regular. The New Testament church practiced this sacrament, and we, the contemporary church, we cannot get more than that we remove the sacred ancient landmarks. We simply can't do that. If Jesus commanded it, if the New Testament church practiced it, then we, the contemporary church here, we should also practice it because it is scriptural and it's Christ-like. Amen. Now, today we are going to take communion. So I really want us to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which talks about, let me use the word, the protocol of communion. And I just want us to go through some things that I believe will enlighten our understanding whilst we partake of communion after I finish preaching. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 to 34. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together, nor for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may not be recognized among you. Excuse me. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? 
Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often you drink it in remembrance of me. And you will proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we will judge ourselves, we will not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. Least you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come in. Very interesting scripture. In fact, when you look at verses 17 to 22, the apostle was comparing and contrasting the attitude of coming for a regular feast versus the Lord's Supper. The apostle was very bored. It's like communion is not a time to fulfill your hunger pangs. So when you are coming, you are not just coming to eat. You are coming to observe something which is uh, sacred and something which is very, let me use the word, religious. You don't just treat this like an ordinary meal. You don't, come, you don't approach the Lord's table like you are going to Burger King or you are going to Hard Castle or any of your restaurants. You come with the attitude of piety. And during the time of Apostle Paul's day, you have to understand that food was brought by rich people. You know, there's, you have to understand that when the church uses the term breaking of bread, it meant two things. Sometimes we just talk on one that has to do with love feast. That's the church eating together in love, in, in communion and harmony. That is correct. The other aspect of breaking of bread is communion. So normally, breaking of bread was a regular feature. In the midst of the breaking of bread, they had a special time where they will take bread and they will take wine. And then they will observe the Lord's Supper. And they will do this in remembrance of Christ, like I explained last week. So, what happened was that the rich people brought food because they were the people that had money. And Christianity those days was a poor man's religion. 
In fact, those days, not many people were rich. Not, sorry, not many Christians were rich. Most Christians who came to the faith were poor. Most Christians who came to the faith were unlearned or unlettered. They were not, they were not skilled. So people really looked down on these people like this thing has no hope. And even Apostle Paul says, look at your people. Not many mighty are called, not many noble, not many wise people are called. But God will use the base things and the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. You see, when Paul was using that statement, it was literal, but it was also figurative. Because the people mostly that followed Christ, many of them were now men of renown. You find people like slaves who were subscribing to this new religion instead of Judaism. So the church had a lot of poor people and the pockets of rich people among them they had the responsibility of bringing food so that they will have the love feast. But this was what was happening. When the rich people come, they will not wait for the poor people and they will eat all the food. So they created an atmosphere of strife, division, and factions. And Apostle Paul was addressing it. That during a time of communion where there should be love, there are factions among you. So from verses 23 to 24, 25, Apostle Paul reiterated the words of Jesus that I received this by revelation of the Lord. You know, when Apostle Paul said that the Lord gave me this, he was not talking about he was present. He's just talking about by revelation. The bread which you eat during the time of communion, it represents Christ's body. This is the body that Christ laid on the cross and perfected our redemption. He became the perfect lamb. So whenever we eat this bread, we eat this in remembrance of that. The wine that you drink, it symbolizes the blood of Christ. This was the blood that was shed for the remission of our sins. And what is remission of our sins? It means that our sins are forgiven and the penalty for the crime has also been canceled. So whenever we take the bread and we take the wine, we remember Christ's death and we are supposed to proclaim this until he comes. So it is a time of solitude. It's a time of solemnity. It's, it's a time to be holy. It's not a time to uh, be loose and take light, the things of God. So Apostle Paul in verses 23 to 25 was really chastising the Corinth church for not knowing why they gather together for communion. You don't gather together for communion as a result of uh, displaying your biases. It's rich against poor and rich we don't mingle with the poor. It's, it's also not a time to satisfy your hunger pangs. But when you come for the Lord's table, which other versions call the Lord's table or the Lord's Supper, when you come for the Lord's Supper, the purpose of coming is to proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. This is the reason why we do communion. We do this so that we don't have to wait till Easter to remind ourselves of the blessing, the benefits, the privileges associated with Christ's death. It's because of Christ's death that I've experienced the remission of sins. I've been forgiven. The penalty for my crime has been canceled. 
I've experienced true and total redemption. When I take communion, communion reminds me of that. And that is the point that Apostle Paul wanted to drive. Now, let's look at verses 25 to 27 to 29 in context. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. What does it mean to approach communion in an unworthy manner? It means to eat it irreverently and treat it like any other meal. That's what it means. There are many people, when they look at this word unworthy, the first thing they read into it is sin. Not necessarily. It's talking about when you take it like you are eating a hamburger. If you take it like you are having a feast, you are having a dinner, I'm so hungry, so I'm using this to break fast. Communion is not a time to break fasting. Communion is not a time to satisfy hunger. It's not, a, you know, the, the communion is not a meal for, for us to enjoy. It is, it is a time of solemn um, embrace where we, we understand what Christ's death truly means and how it has affected us in the new covenant. Communion is a time to be reflective. It's a time to reflect on how the Lord suffered that you have become an heir of salvation. When you don't have this at mind, when you don't have this in your mind, and you take the meal anyhow, the Bible lets us know that you have ate it in an unworthy manner. That means you have treated it like any other meal. And I pray that when we approach the Lord's table or when we take communion, may we not just treat it like any other meal. Or see it like, oh, automatic, first Sunday of the month, we have communion. Let's just have communion. When you do that, you eat it in an unworthy manner because you are treating it like anything. But like the Bible says, and we have read through the scriptures over and over again, communion is done so that we will remember Christ's suffering, the price which he paid that I could become an heir of salvation, the price that he paid that I could experience redemption, the price that he paid that he, ex- he exchanged my curse for his blessing, the price that he paid that I could become an heir of God and also receive the promise of the Father, which is the Holy Spirit. You have to think of all these things. This is the reason why communion should be seen as a sacred moment in our worship service. Because when we do that, we put this to the forefront of our mind and we will never forget. Amen. Now, the second thing that I want us to note in the scripture we just read was, let a man examine himself. Let a man examine himself. Now, the examination here doesn't mean introspection. 
And when I'm talking about introspection, it doesn't mean that if you have sinned, you don't qualify. That is not what it's talking about here. Am I saying that should we approach the, Lord, the Lord's table sinfully? That's not what I'm talking about. But when you look at this word in context, this simply means that you have to understand the significance of the Lord's Supper. So when the Bible says that, let a man examine himself before you partake of communion, examine that, do I understand the significance of this moment? That is examination. It is not talking about, have I sinned or am I a saint? It's not necessarily talking about introspection per se. And that's why I said in, in, in last week, in part one, that communion is not a time of exclusion. Because when Christ incepted the meal, he said, drink all of you, not some of you, not most of you. Because tr- tr- truth be told, if Christ was to exclude people from partaking of the Lord's Supper, it would have been only John the Beloved. Let's face it. Because he was the only disciple that followed Christ to Golgotha. He was the only person that followed Christ to the hill. Every other disciple forsook Christ. It's not only Judas that betrayed Christ. Everybody, Peter was nowhere to be found. Andrew was nowhere to be found. It was only John the Beloved. And that's why when we read the scriptures, the Bible lets us know that Jesus, just about to give up the ghost, he looked at John, he said, John, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. He was the only one there. So if Jesus was to practice elimination, as we say in my local language, by rough tactics, all of them would have been disqualified, except John the Beloved. But he didn't disqualify anybody. And Jesus is the greatest prophet. Before the foundation of the world, he knew who would betray him. What can you hide before him? But he opened it up for everybody to partake. So when the Bible talks about examine yourself, it is talking about you knowing the significance of the moment. I hope you're understanding me this morning. And the Bible lets us know that when we partake of the Lord's Supper without understanding, it is tantamount to partaking it unworthily. And there's a consequence for that. When you do that, it results in judgment. So please, communion is very serious business. If you don't understand the significance of the moment, you can eat and drink yourself unto judgment. Because it is not a regular meal. This is a solemn meal that is done in remembrance, in honor of Christ, who is the head of the church. So from this scripture, you don't serve an unbeliever communion. Because if you serve an unbeliever communion, you are doing him more harm than good. There are many times, because I I quite know the number of this church. I quite know everybody's standing by the grace of God. But in some places, you will have to make an altar call for people to receive Christ as their Lord and best and Savior before you let them take communion. That is the only exclusion. Why? Because when you do that, you have saved the guy. Because if he partakes it unworthily, 
he brings judgment to himself. And that's why when we read the scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Bible lets us know that before we partake of the communion of the blood of Christ and the communion of the body of Christ, we all have to make sure that we have first partaken of the bread. Who is Jesus? He's the living bread and he gives us eternal life. And if you have not experienced Jesus, there is no way communion will make sense to you. It will not. So based on this scripture, if you serve an unbeliever communion without him understanding the significance, you are doing him more harm than good. But apart from that, no born-again Christian, listen to me, should be excluded from partaking the Lord's Supper for whatever reason. Nobody should be excluded. During Jesus' time, a betrayer who God did one possessed sat at the Lord's table, and Jesus didn't forbid them. And so was Peter, who was going to deny Christ thrice. He also sat at the Lord's table, and the Lord did not forbid him. Like I said, if we have all received Christ as our Lord and personal Savior, we all qualify to receive the Lord's Supper or the Holy Communion. Except if you are an unbeliever, you don't qualify. Because you are tempted to eat it in an unworthy manner, bringing judgment upon yourself. Amen. A carnal crowd of disciples in Luke chapter 22. You know, when they finished having communion, they started arguing that who is going to be the head of the church. They were power-hungry people. Yet Jesus said, you can partake. Drink all of you. Now, the Corinth church, you have to understand this Corinth church. They had a history. They had a lot of problems, but Paul didn't forbid them. If you should take your time to read through the whole book of Corinthians, they were not holy people. But when you read them, it will make you feel good for once that I've met my kind. Because when you read chapter 3, these people were sectarians. And sectarians mean they believed in factions. You know, during the Corinth church, one of the common things that was there was groups, factions. They liked to form small cliques. And sometimes in church, to stifle the move of God is when cliques are being formed. Oh, we prefer this preacher. We don't like this preacher. This preacher preaches well. That preacher doesn't preach well. We prefer this singer. We don't like that singer. And you see people with, in cliques. Sometimes that happens when the church becomes large. These are some of the evils you will have to deal with. And that was very common and prevalent among the Corinth church. When you read chapter 5, they were immoral. They slept with their father's wife and they were in church. If you read chapter, chapter 6, they sued one another. They took people to court. So in, in the current church, you could be easily coming to church and you have your law papers in, in, the, in the pages of your Bible because you've been sued. 
Barnabas and Barnabas, ba- Barnabas and Barnabas Esquire. You've been, you've been sued. A, a lawyer called Barnabas has written to you. He's taking you to town. And he's taking you to town by a fellow brother. They sued one another. Chapter 8, they were insensitive to conscience. You see, it, it, we, we thank God for the book of Corinthians because the book of Corinthians, one of the strongest lessons it teaches us is how to live grace. These people didn't know how to live grace. And that's why Paul wrote the book of Corinthians. That when you receive the gospel of grace, you are not to live wantonly and live anyhow dead to conscience. Chapter 8. These were very insensitive to conscience. Even if you read chapter 9, verse 1, Paul says, I speak, my conscience not lying. You see, after he told them about how dead their conscience were in chapter 8, he had to let them know that I have a living conscience. Now, if you read chapter 9, verse 24 following, these people were lascivious. Old English word for ill-disciplined. They have no self-control. No self-control. Chapter 10, they were idolatrous. In fact, if you read the whole of chapter 10, Paul was saying that you can't partake the Lord's table, which was talking about communion, and then partake of the table of devils. Because communion, uh, the, co- Corinthians, I'm sorry, they were also like Babylon. They practiced mixed worship. They were idolatrous. And sometimes you see that in the church. You see people who have other gods. They say, we have received God, but they, they, they still serve God. They, they are practicing a mixture. They won't let go of some things. I can let go of everything, but this particular thing, I'll still hold on to it. That's a Corinthian attitude. Chapter, 11, chapter 10. Chapter 11, they were inconsiderate to the poor. And we just read that. They were very inconsiderate to the poor. A time of communion had now become a time where there was separation, factions, as was rich hanging with the rich, and they leave the poor to themselves. And the poor people were very disenfranchised. And considerate to the poor. Chapter 14, they were very disorderly in service. And if you do remember, last year, we read the whole of chapter 14, talking about tanks. Apostle Paul had to talk about that because of the disorderliness in their service, even though they abounded in spiritual gifts. Yet, Paul never for once forbade them for partaking of the Lord's table. So that's what I want to drive our point to. With all the scruples this Corinthian church had, he never said that you are not worthy as sin, you have sinned, so you can't partake of the Lord's table. What Paul drove home was that if you don't understand the significance of it, you are eating it in an unworthy manner. And then he talked about the judgment that happens in verse 30. That one of the ways that you will judge yourself if you partake of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, that is not understanding the significance of it, you will fall sick, you will become weak, and you will die. And that's why I say, an unbeliever, we have to show them. Because he is not a Christian. He doesn't understand it. And you could put penalties on him. Amen. Now, Paul said something that 
when we judge ourselves. And why do we judge ourselves? In regards to the Lord's communion, we will not be judged. But if we are judged, it is the Lord's chastening so that we will not be condemned by the world. So Paul now sets in order what should take place in verses 33 to 34. He says that, wait for one another, come together, so that you can all observe the Lord's table. I don't want to see factions. I don't want to see divisions. And then one other thing he said, if you are hungry, eat at home to avoid judgment. So communion is not a time to like, wow, I'm about to have a spread. That's not the purpose of communion. If you think like that, stay at home. Eat your meal to avoid judgment. In this spirit, we are going to take communion. And I want to believe that we all understand the significance of this moment. But before that, it will not hurt to make an altar call. If you are here and you have not received Christ as your Lord and personal Savior, I want to pray with you this morning. Because it's very important that you have partaken of the living bread, then you can partake of the symbolism. Take him as the living bread. You know, in John chapter 6, Jesus referred to himself as, I am the living bread, and if you take of me, eat of me, and drink of me, you will have eternal life. Communion doesn't give eternal life. I see many pastors using John chapter 6 to preach communion, but Jesus was talking about himself. If you take me, you have eaten bread. You have eternal life. Communion doesn't give eternal life. Communion just helps us to be in remembrance of the Lord's death. So John chapter 6, even though it talks about blood, wine, bread, it doesn't refer to communion. It refers to Christ himself. Take me, I am the living bread. Take me, I, I satisfy every, every, every hunger. I quench every thirst. If you eat me and drink of me, you will have eternal. That's Christ. You need to do that first. Have that taste first before you can partake of the symbolism of the communion of the blood of Christ and the body of Christ. I just want to pray. Maybe you are listening to me by a podcast or by a recording. If you have not received the Lord Jesus, say with me, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you will come into my life. I confess all my sins and I say I am a sinner. Please wash me by your blood. Forgive me of all my sins. And Father, may I enter into your rest. I thank you, O Lord, that all my sins are forgiven. I thank you, O Lord, that I am a candidate of heaven. I thank you, O Lord, that I have been avoided of the impending judgment of your wrath to come. Thank you for sending your son to die for me. I receive you as Lord, and I renounce Satan that he is no longer my father. Thank you, O Lord, for the gift of righteousness. I declare by faith that I am saved because I believe it with my heart and have confessed it with my mouth. In Jesus' name, amen. If you pray this prayer in faith, believing, confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, I hereby say you are saved and you can partake of communion. 
Amen. But with us present at the service, let's continue. The Bible says that we take communion to do it in remembrance of Christ. So today as we take of communion, remember Christ's death, the price that he paid for you to be free. He paid for you to be redeemed, paid for you to be an heir of salvation, an heir of God, to have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you so that he will give you that assurance to cry to God, Abba, Father. Think of all these benefits. With that, I just want us to take the bread. Father, we thank you for your body that you broke for us. As we eat of this, we do it in remembrance and in honor of you. Amen. Shall we eat? As we take the wine that signifies his blood, we remind ourselves that we are forgiven. We have experienced the remission of sins. Thank you that the penalty for my sin is canceled so that I can walk free of guilt, free of shame, free of condemnation. This is the blood of the new covenant. By this, I am also inserted into a new covenant which has better promises than the old covenant. Shall we drink? Lord, I pray that from today, may we have a new meaning of what it means to sit at your table. In Jesus' name, amen.